Hello and welcome to episode 340 of the Fabulous Pelton Cast, sponsored by our friends at Pagliacci Pizza. I'm your co-host, Kevin And Bell. I'm Tristan Carcino. And we are coming to you from Renton, Washington, home of the Super Bowl 48 champion, Seattle Seahawks. It is the Rain Man edition of the Pelton Cast, a big one. Always, always a strong episode of the Pelton Cast, the Rain Man edition. Uh, well, to drink this week. You said that like you remember previous ones. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> It's just a it's just a good number. <laughs> okay. We can all agree forty Sean is a, a good number. Uh to drink this week we have the Farewell to Monster Ale Mango pa- Farewell to Monster Island Mango Pale Ale from our friends at Figurehead Brewing Company, which I just learned is in Magnolia. There we go. Uh, this oatmeal pale ale fe- features a flurry attack of mango, tropical fruit, and citrus. The perfect powerful pale to sip in summer sunset. And that's there you tell. we go. We have gone deep in the archives because we did not know that I did not know that we were going to be recording summer this podcast tonight. Summer is literally sunsetting <laughs> right now. I was going to go to Beer Star tomorrow and get beer because uh, I'm going to dinner across the street from there. But uh, alas, alas, that was not in the cards. You, you seem alarmed by whatever I'm, happened I'm, after you I opened this bottle. Fra- the fragrance. Okay. You were, you were, what notes did you get out of there? Mango. <laughs> you know, the thing about mango is it kind of sounds like magnolia. But you never thought about that. All right. Well, we have a number of toasts this week, primarily, with our friends from the University of Washington. There we go. We did an emergency pod after Saturday night's late-night Apple Cup victory. I think... Was that the latest... Emergency pod we've ever recorded. You think so? I think it might be. All right, it, it's definitely up there. Uh, the was, one that we did, the Husky basketball one, when they beat Arizona, yeah, and you were at key. the game and then drove back here. But that still was like ten thirty at night. This the game ended at like eleven fifteen. All right. All right, first off, two Michael Penix Jr., Henry Baini Valu, and Jeremiah Martin, who were chosen Pac-12 Offensive Player, Offensive Lineman, and Defensive Lineman of the Week, respectively, for their performances in Set Apple. Well, there's other awards. No, they sweeped it. Swept (laughs) it. They sweeped it. They sweeped it. (laughs) Just like they sweeped the Northwest, the North Division, and the Northwest Championship, Huskies also sweeped to sweeped it the player of the week honors uh and we learned coming off a pretty severe sickness within the team in the week leading up to it yeah uh yeah that was uh, another factor that they had to overcome there it, probably not ideal in the temperature in pullman on saturday night which ultimately didn't seem like it was a factor really at all when the team is playing well you announce the injuries after the game happens when you, when you're i mean aaron Rodgers was actually injured in that game on sunday night but like i think when, i mean the lebron thing was after the i, su- I suppose that's after it happens yeah. but I there's a lot of players way. who maybe after they play badly then they're just like oh hurt them <laughs> all right next up we mentioned this a little bit during the uh, emergency pod but uh, to keon brooks jr Named MVP as UW won the Wooden Legacy Tournament for the second time in school history with Frank Kepnong joining him on the all-tournament team. Hang that one in the rafters. MVP of that two-game tournament. (laughs) (laughs) 
You remember that forever. Children children I mean, grow up dreaming of being the MVP of the Wooden Legacy Tournament. I mean, it's only one fewer game than all other, like, the marquee non-conference tournaments. Any, in, being the MVP of any non-conference tournament is kind of ridiculous. Zach Eady earned that MVP of whichever of the Phil Knight tournaments he was the MVP of for Purdue, beating Gonzaga. Uh, next up. It's ju- just above being MVP of the MLS's back tournament. <laughs> <laughs> the Dippers celebrate that one, I assume. Uh, next up, two UW Volleyball on a 21st consecutive NCAA tournament appearance. The Huskies are an eight seed and headed to Madison, Wisconsin for the sub-regionals. They'll face TCU in the opening round. The winner of that will presumably go on to face the other UW hosting this one uh-uh. as the top seed in their region. So... A difficult, difficult path for the Huskies to the regionals on this one. And then lastly this week. Biting my tongue there. To see, you think they're underseated? No. To SeaTac native Dave Cameron of USS Mariner and Fangraphs fame, who is officially joining the Mariners in a full-time role as director of player procurement after spending last season as go. a consultant for the team. And look, I got to say, there were a lot of seasons where Dave Cameron was not working for the Mariners. They didn't seem to make the playoffs in almost any of them. That is true. One season where Dave Cameron was working for the 100% of the time they make the playoffs when Dave Cameron is working for the team. And I was thinking, this is my favorite time of year. This is when I start thinking about, we've got a lot of great end-of-year podcasts coming up. This is my favorite podcasting time of year. I don't know when we do. It's the most wonderful podcasting of the year. Hopefully there won't be any scary ghost stories on any of these. Uh, I thought you were going to say hopefully there won't be any singing. <laughs> well, that too. Uh, we've got our... When do we usually do the year in music? Like the next two weeks or so, right? Well, you know, I, I've i been looking at the calendar. I feel like Monday, December 18th is a... Po- or is it... Uh, December 19th is a possible time for that one. Okay, that's kind of late. Is It, that, I it would like- be kind of late, but because there's a full week leading up to... Uh, christmas eve on saturday there's probably enough time to do a two podcast week and then you could on the on the 26th maybe drop the weekly pod and 28th end of the year end of the year we should do the music the week before though on the week of the 12th okay well we've really planned that out so you can please the listener can plan plan your schedule around those (laughs) podcasts anyway i was just thinking of the mariners and i was like we're doing an an end of seattle sports year interview podcast that will be fairly heavily dominated in a lot of ways by the Mariners, which is a first. Oh, suffice it to say, it is definitely a first. Are you ready? I mean, I assume the Robinson Cano signing made the top <laughs> 10 sports stories of the year. That there first were sports year. stories. that I feel like Mariners sports stories that had made it at various times, but Cal Rally, big dumper. Seattle Sports Star of the Year. Let's freaking go. Oh, I haven't thought about who the Seattle Sports Star of the Year is going to be. If you think for two seconds about it, it'll be very obvious who it is. You think for sure it's that person? I think it's going to be unanimous. All right, we'll see. We'll see. We've got a few more weeks for all those uh, precincts to report. No, there are a lot of of people, including the person who is the uh, Offensive Player of the Week in the Pac-12 this last week. But... uh, there, there I mean, are a also, lot of you options. You can only award this one time in a player's career. You're going to give it for this season? You think this is going to be the high point? Wow. I personally felt like Haggerty had a really good season, <laughs> like the highest we were expecting. But apparently competing with the greatest record of all time is not important enough for you. Fair. <laughs> Fair. Uh, all right. With the toasts out of the way, quick food update. Uh, Little Woody's Fast Food Month. 
They've been teasing it. You mentioned oh. it last week. There's a fifth week in November. And so there's going to be a fifth bur- fast food burger. TBD officially on what it is. I will just say, to me, I felt like they ripped off the Pelton Cast burger that Lil Woody's had. <laughs> that may, that may they, prove the truth. They dug sure. deep. They looked into the archives and they were like, you know who had a great burger? Pelton Cast had a great burger. Let's do something similar. And we invented that type of burger. Yep. You and I. Clearly so. <laughs> That's why they're they're doing four fast food with their own burger. Uh, I had a couple of quick notes on food. First, wow, off, notes on food. Notes on food. Went to a Seattle U men's basketball game last week, uh, and looking for parking, noticed I did not realize this may have been there for multiple years because it's been a long time since I've been over in that neighborhood. That Carmelo's Tacos now has its own physical location in some of the Seattle U housing along 12th Avenue. Okay. And so I stopped in there after the game naturally. Sadly, they were out of El Pastor tacos by the time. Because it was wow. right before closing that I went in there. Okay. Uh, so that, that, I think, is the standout of their menu. But still quite strong tacos. Look forward to going there again in the future. Because it was the first time. I've only been there one other time. After, like, we were told that they were a legit contender for Seattle's Best Taco, popping up after we had crowned Tacos Chukis. We might have to do a re-Seattle's re Best Tacos at some point. I don't know if we need to do a full re-Seattle's Best Tacos, but okay. we're, we're constantly searching. We're always competing for Seattle's Best Foods. Uh, second off, I spent the weekend in Portland. <laughs> Except when we stopped the search. <laughs> Stop the search. <laughs> Sometimes, look, the barbecue search, we never know when it could return again at any time. It is true. It is true. Uh, I spent the weekend in Portland at the aforementioned Phil Knight tournaments. Uh, had Fury Ramen for the first time since April. Still, still top notch. Uh, but also wanted to mention a place I've been meaning to check out for a long period of time. I, I think it's pronounced Padi, P-A-A-D-E-E. And I was told back before Pak Pak closed its doors that Padi was actually superior Thai food okay. in Portland. It's uh, down the street from the east side screen door location. All right. There on Burnside. Uh, had the cow soy takeout and drove it back to my hotel. So it was like a 20-minute drive, maybe a half hour before I actually ate it. I thought the cow soy was better than Pac Pox. Wow. So I am very excited to go there again, hopefully with Nate Duncan so I can order half the menu and try it. <laughs> Because obviously I only had that one thing, but it was it was outstanding. I'm excited to hear about this also. So there you go. Uh, can I talk about one one more bit of food news? Okay. Thanksgiving edition. Oh. I've been talking to everybody who I can about this, and most people are not particularly aware of it. Spatchcocking your turkey. So are, are people not aware of that? I guess we I had two, two separate uncle. conversations. I, I was on a Zoom earlier today uh, with the fine people at Seven Seas Brewing slash Heidelberg. Our friends. Who, yeah. We may be seeing more of them uh, later on. Let's That's not even so. a teaser. I literally don't know. We just may be seeing more of them. Uh, but with our good friends from Seven Seas Brewing, and I mention it that I spatchcocked the turkey this year at Thanksgiving, and and they didn't seem particularly aware of what I was talking about. Mm -hmm. So I feel like the spatchcock has not quite entered mainstream conversation just yet in the turkey world. It's still at like the cooking nerd level. I, I maybe, I don't know if it's even there. Like, I'm not trying to say that this is like a hipster thing to do or whatever. I'm not trying to take credit for this, right? The chefs everywhere. It's everywhere on the internet, but random people you talk to are not 
quite that familiar with the spatchcock. And after doing it, Wednesday night before Thanksgiving, I said to myself, I'm free. I was looking around, like trying to find all the best ways, you know, all the latest news and uh, Thanksgiving turkeys. I mean, there's a lot of innovations. Um, and I was like, I have to do it. I thought about it last year. I ended up doing it this year. I, I was like, I have to spatchcock that motherfucker. And I did it. It was, it was not, it, it is a, a scary process before you do it. And then you do it and you're like, this took five minutes. I don't know why I was scared of this or whatever. But I mean, you can attest yourself to me. It was the best turkey I've ever had in my entire life. Not only would I agree with that, I actually thought like taking gravy off the table in this case and not in our Dane Duggan rankings, I thought it was the single best thing that I had at wow. your Thanksgiving dinner. Turkey turkey elevated to number one. Turkey was number one. That's what I primarily went back for seconds on. It was straight turkey. Yes. Not even gravy. No, I put gravy on it, obviously. But it didn't but you even necessarily need the gravy. Without the gravy. Like, yeah. It was juicy and flavorful. It's, it's incredible, right? Yeah. That's, I mean, all, all, I take no credit for this. This is all praise to the spatchcock of the turkey. I mean, you got to do everything. But that's, I'm just like. The brine plus the spatchcock. And, and the seasoning, the turkey beforehand. Yeah. But to me, it's like, the, it's, it's a mainstream, like it's almost not, it's a cold take at this point to say that turkey is the worst part of a Thanksgiving dinner. Yes. And I totally agree. After eating that, I was like, everything else is fine. But the turkey was the star of that Thanksgiving dinner, and it was because of spatchcock in. I mean, obviously, I wasn't disappointed to not be able to eat any leftovers because I was eating in Portland all weekend. It was great, but I was a little disappointed to not be able to eat any more of that. It was excellent. So anyway, that's all I'm saying, that if there's somebody out there who's been wanting to do it and hasn't, that it is it is worth doing with the combination of They'll definitely all remember that 12 months from now. I'm never not going to spatchcock a turkey again. There you go. I, it's like, uh, okay, that, that's good to know. That, I think that is almost a hot take. How about that? It's a cold take to say that turkey is the worst part of a Thanksgiving dinner. It is a hot take to say that if you spatchcock the turkey, it is the best part of a Thanksgiving dinner. I, I would agree with turkey that. Turkey is back, people. Wow. <laughs> I come back. Well, unfortunately, Damian Lillard is not back. Places have dropped five of their last six, but an impressive overtime win against the Knicks on set on Friday. That was, uh, and Jeremy Grit set the franchise record with 28 free throws. The uh, scouts at the Phil Knight tournament were buzzing about that one. Certainly that performance. Uh, some Mariners news, and we're waving goodbye Ugh. to an old friend. Carlos Santana reportedly headed to the Pirates on a one-year, $6.7 million deal, according to my ESPN colleague, Jeff Passan. For the last time, we're going to have to play the, the interpol- interpolation, I don't know what it was, <laughs> of Santana songs because of you confusing which song was smooth and which song said is played by Carlos Santana. Play by Carlos Santana. Did you play it? Yeah. Okay, great. <laughs> oh, 
Please stop. We'll, we'll see how my edit is. Uh, honestly, for one half of a season, th- those are the kind of the best things about baseball. Or I guess maybe even sports in general, where you remember these like one half seasons where you're like, that dude, that dude is amazing. Hard hitting Mark Witten, was that more than one half season? I don't think so. That he was here? It's like, I will never forget hard hitting Mark, Mark Witten. Witten was that good for the Mariners. You just Carlos Santana wasn't that good for the Mariners. I mean, <laughs> like, I don't know. It's not about being that good. It's about having these fun moments. It's not like Randy Johnson on the Astros where he showed up and gave up zero runs over like a fucking three month period or whatever. It's more about you just have a player for a couple of months and you really like them for those couple of months and then they're gone. I mean, to your point, Santana hit 192 during his time with the Mariners, a 293 on base percentage, although his 400 slugging ranked fifth among Mariners with at least 250 at bats. But immediately after the Mariners acquired him, they won 14 consecutive games. He started 13 of the 14. I felt like one thing I was surprised by is I went and searched for like Carlos Santana Mariners highlights, and there weren't as many like walk off hits as I kind of imagined in my head. I think I remember him as a bigger part of that winning streak than Not, he actually was. No, he had a couple of homers to like tie the game and right. take the lead. He had and some, obviously a monster home running game two in Toronto. I think Carl, Carlos was an awesome player for those couple of months he was here. It was great. I mean, Jerry Tapoto had suggested it was unlikely Santana was going to return given their desire to use DH to rest players as part of their outfield rotation. Uh, Ty France obviously set at first base, so given that, maybe not a starting spot. It will be kind of interesting to see how Santana does next season. As we know, is a lefty, the most, is, when he was hitting lefty, the switch hitter, most, most shifted player in baseball last season. I mean, the, the cool thing about Say what you will about the DH. I honestly don't even know how I feel about it going away. But the cool thing about it is that there are a lot more jobs for Carlos Santana now. You mean going to both leagues, not going away. That's what I'm saying about about the pitchers hitting going away, right? But it's now there are double the amount of jobs that are available for a player like Carlos Santana. Obviously, you can play first or whatever, but like having having that as an option, it's extending his career. I'm very fascinated. I'm also, I'm going to throw this out there as a hot take. Not willing to say that we've seen the last of Carlos Santana. I had that thought too, actually. It was like, you know, he started that year in Kansas City last year. Nobody remembers that. But it's just like, if things go south in Pittsburgh and all of a sudden the Mariners need another bat or whatever. I mean, because one thing I was thinking is possible. It was a one year deal that he signed? Yeah. Oh, I mean, it's very plausible that he gets traded because there's also like injuries at multiple positions could make Santana more of a fit because we saw that Ty France played a bunch of third last season with Santana at first when Gino Suarez was out of the lineup. So I mean, the lineup was bleak for a second. <laughs> it, was, it was very bleak right. If all of a sudden they're calling on Jake Lamb, a trade for Carlos Santana might seem pretty reasonable. Jake, Jake Lamb no, no longer on the roster. Uh, but there, there was there was a, a small rumor today about uh, the Mariners being interested in Seattle's own Michael Conforto. That name has been out there, yeah. Which would definitely add to the outfield rotation. They're just, they're, there's going to be... Conforto a, was a beaver, right? A lot of guys. Uh, he was a beef. The Mariners did... We love the beefs, too. Did, according to... Yeah, we should have toasted the <laughs> toasted beefs. Toasted the beefs. <laughs> Shit. Go beefs. Uh... <laughs> 
the, the Mariners did add a uh, reliever, uh, is first reported by The Athletic on Monday. Trevor Gott, most recently with the uh, Milwaukee Brewers, pitched 45 games for them last season, 4.14 ERA, uh, was not offered arbitration by the Brewers, non-tendered, instead making him a free agent. So uh, that's not a major addition. But... Bodies in the bullpen? Sure. Why not? Yeah. The, honestly, any player in the bullpen could be the next player to have you, like a one ERA know. in the bullpen. You truly never no, but also while we're here, we have to mention that the Houston Astros signed Jose Abreu. I'm not aware of this information. Well, the Houston Astros signed Jose Abreu. Okay, are you familiar with who that is? Not really. Okay, well, uh, to get you familiar, he won the MVP two seasons ago. Okay, <laughs> like if you if you didn't play against the Mariners prominently last season, I'm just not that aware. I played the White Sox quite a few times. He has okay. received MVP votes in the last four seasons. Four. I think I may know this, this guy. He has received MVP vo- votes five out of the last six years. Oh, and no older players will ever play well for the Astros. <laughs> <laughs> We're counting couldn't, on Jose Abreu aging. Happen. They're not the fucking Rams. Like, it's not about to all explode. Mm. The Astros are fine. They've, and they've Jerry, been, Jerry, been. you got to bring us Trey Turner now. If the Astros are out there signing Jose Abreu, you have to do one more on top of that. This is not a sit-back-and-wait type situation. We cannot wait on the Astros to get bad because the Astros will literally never be bad ever again. I don't know. I think you're underestimating their front office dysfunction, but I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. I think it's like a... a, a not a decades-level timetable, but at some point, if your owner is meddling and stuff, and you get rid of your GM after you win the World Series, <laughs> I feel like hard. that's not great. You know what? For you they got rid of their GM after they won the World Series, and then they went on and signed Jose Abreu. This is not the time to sit back and wait, Jerry. This is a goddamn arms race, and the Mariners have to keep up in it. All right. Well, there's a lot of free agency left to go. Jose Abreu is not. Bring me Aaron Judge. That's it. Okay. No. <laughs> okay. Let's all. Remember. He has not said. I still just baseball free agency is so perplexing. It's like you don't want these guys. <laughs> like, what does it take to that's, expedite this process? That's what the collusion is for. I mean, it's like yes, it is collusion, but also the players are paid way more than any other sport. So, I mean, they're played like larger contracts because the length is longer. They're paid longer in length and maybe equal in terms but of... But Aaron Judge the talk is like him getting like a $300 million contract, right? I don't know. Is it much I think it's going to be more than that. I think it's going to be like 400 450 I mean, we're moving very close to five-year $300 million contracts in the NBA. That's going to happen very soon. Is that Does that fit within the salary cap? But the, the cap is going up is what I'm saying. New TV deal is coming. Jokic's deal is projected at five years. I'm doing this math off the top of my head. $270 million. So, again, we're not that far off. I mean, but the extra years do matter because they you're talking do, about... but it's not like Jokic is going to make a zero after year five of that contract. I know, but like they're not going to be paying Jokic into when he is obviously going to be bad. And in baseball... Oh, you're impossible for Jokic. But Jokic will be bad someday. No. Maybe he's on the Astros timeline for when he will oh. be bad. Jokic will eventually be bad. Can't. All of us will eventually be bad. <laughs> We're a long enough time plan. All of us will eventually be bad. We may even we may even someday get worse at podcasting. No. <laughs> well, you know who's on the current timeline? Not bad. 
but very good. There we go. It's the Seattle Kraken. Hello. Ready a five-game winning streak for the second time this season to tie the Those franchise record. Those are the kind record. of transitions you make when you're in your <laughs> podcasting prime. Yes. <laughs> On our A game. <laughs> uh, the Kraken last Wednesday scored a franchise record eight goals. Wow. Closing out their homestand with an 8-5 win over the San Jose Sharks, reaching that total with an empty netter in the final seconds. They then won Friday at division-leading Vegas 4-2 behind a pair of goals from Andre Burakovsky. And on Sunday, got uh, another 5-4 win on the road at Anaheim, getting a goal and two assists from Matty Beneers. Kraken now up to second in the Western Conference with 29 points. They're plus 15 goal differential rigs, fourth in the conference, so we're not to get something that's like especially fluky for them right here now. I mean, there's probably some regression coming for the Kraken, but they just look like a good team, which is pretty shocking given where they came from last year. Uh, they close out that West, the uh, SoCal, I guess, road trip, plus Vegas, uh, at Los Angeles on Tuesday night, Thursday back home to take on the Washington Capitals, Saturday host the Florida Panthers. And then next Tuesday, the Montreal Canadiens. All right, you know, women's basketball, we move along. Split two games at the Las Vegas tournament, beating Fordham 71-62 on Friday behind three players in double figures, led by 21 points on 9 of 13 shooting from Emma Grothaus off the bench in 26 minutes. A day later, the Huskies suffered their first loss in the season by a 71-58 final to Santa Clara, shooting just 35% from the field, 7 of 25 on threes. Freshman Hannah Steins was a bright spot, scoring double figures for the third consecutive game. Uh, we'll talk in a moment about the UW-Seattle-U men's basketball matchup on Wednesday. The UW women will host Seattle-U, which winless at 0-5 against a fairly difficult schedule. They've lost already at both Oregon schools by a combined 79 points. Whew. Then Sunday, UW will host Queens University, a first-year Division I program that has started the season 4-2. Can you guess what state wow. Queens University is? I will give you a hint. It is not in New York. <laughs> <laughs> not that Queens. Second hint, I have actually been to the campus of Queens University. Wow. Or not. I didn't even know that I had been there. I did not remember that I had been there until I looked at their Wikipedia page. Queens University, and you've been to the camp. Now that makes me have to think about where you've been. I mean, I've been to a lot of places. (laughs) I'm going to say it is in... You went to Kansas City, is that right? I have been to Kansas City. That's accurate. I'm going to say that it is in Kansas City. Oh, no. That was wrong. It's actually in Charlotte. It was the site of the... Uh, is it Basketball Without Borders tournament, I believe, during All-Star Weekend 2019? Queens University yeah. in Charlotte, huh? Yep. Okay. So, again, first year D1, 4-2. and two What thus far. queen is this named after? Well, the city of Charlotte is named after a queen. It's called the Queen City. Is it really? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah, you said that like it's obvious. Like I, knew, I could tell you anything about Charlotte aside from Grandmama. <laughs> And That's the number one thing relative, about Charlotte. It's relative proximity to Charleston. <laughs> you only know that because I went to Charleston on that trip. Yes. <laughs> Charlotte is named after a queen? Queen Charlotte, yes. Queen was, Charlotte. Yeah. I figured. Uh, all right, you know men's basketball. You were, you were trying to find a, some like notable info. AT&T's base there, is that right? No. Oh, banking. Bank of America. Bank of America. Uh, okay. Bank base there. They, they have the stadium naming rights. Uh, UW men's basketball might be good. There we go. 
At the Wooden Classic, they won a rock fight Wednesday against Fresno State despite shooting 38% from the field and 5 of 23 from three-point range. The Bulldogs also at 38%, 6 of 26 beyond the arc in addition to committing 21 turnovers. <laughs> Huskies outscored them 13 to 5 at the free throw line, including 7 of 7 foul shooting from Keon Brooks Jr., the only UW scorer in double figures, with 16 despite his 4 of 15 shooting. So then late on Thanksgiving night, very late, actually, he finished much later than the UW football game that kicked off at 7.30 p.m. They stunned St. Mary's in the Woodens Legacy Final <laughs> with a 68-64 overtime win. Huskies controlled the defensive glass, got key contributions off the bench from freshman Corin Johnson, who played heavy minutes in the first half with P.J. Fuller the second in foul trouble, then stayed on the court next to Fuller in the second half, giving UW more ball handling and playmaking. Johnson scored a career-high 11 points on 4 of 7 shooting. Fuller had an end one in the final minute of regulation, and then Fresno State missed a pair of potential go-ahead threes, forcing overtime. There, Huskies took the lead for good on a pair of Braxton Mia free throws and held Fresno State to just six points for one of the best non-conference wins of the Mike Hopkins era. Wow. All right. I mean, Braxton Mia is his name? Yes. Uh, I mean, a monster performance. Well, we're going to talk more about Mia in a second. Okay. But you got anything specific on this one? Since you actually watched like the last five minutes plus over <laughs> It was pretty much the first Husky basketball I've watched this year. I watched a few minutes of the Fresno State game, and it was abhorrent to watch. It um, was actually the most intently. I was driving down to Portland during the first half and listening to it on very grainy radio signal. Uh, but the second half was actually the most intently I've watched UW men's basketball because there was no other NBA going on to I, divide my attention. I described it as desultory. <laughs> How's that pronounced? How do you think it's desultory? I think it's desultory. Desultory? Desultory? No, I'm not sure on that okay. one myself. No, I think you're right. So then Monday night, my whole thought was, and I've mentioned this multiple times to people in Portland, like how, how UW would it be to beat St. Mary's, win the tournament, and then come home and lose to Seattle U? And for a half, they said You talk strong. to a lot of people about this? A decent number, yeah. <laughs> Because it was mostly you're out. just down there in Portland shitting on the Huskies the entire time. <laughs> yeah, like anybody noticed that missed extra point? <laughs> you're like going around did, finding people in Oregon about that. No, because I was mostly talking about University of Portland, how good they were in Seattle. You beating them, therefore Seattle U being good. So wow, by the transitive property, UW's better than Portland. <laughs> Huge, nailed it. Anyway, I, I mean they are now ahead of them in Ken Palm. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, We're going to get to a lot of things in a second. Seattle, you took a 40 to 38 halftime lead, maintained it the first five and a half minutes of the second half. And it was like, oh, this is going to be the year. Seattle, U is going to finally do it. I think the first time since 1979 that they would have beaten the Huskies. But then UW took control at scoring the Red Hawks 33 to 16 over the final 16 minutes of this game to hand Seattle, U their first loss of the season after a five and a start. It's funny you mentioned that because we talked a few weeks ago about how in the win streak that Oregon football had against UW about how it was kind of surprising that UW just didn't win one time, right? And it's not right. like there's been a year where Seattle U's been better than UW overall basketball, but UW's lost to a lot of teams that were just as bad as Seattle U. Way worse than Seattle U, yes. Which I, I think there's probably an element of like, look, they get up for Seattle U in a way that they're not going to for Cal Baptist. I, it's Okay. What? Just the description of this team this year where it's like, well, if you if you ignore the Cal Baptist lost, and it's like... I'm not ignoring the Cal Baptist lost. I want to be clear It'd about be that. a great season so far if you just forget about the Cal Baptist lost. It's like, why? Why is that... I'm, How? I'm more frustrated about the Arizona State lost than I have the Cal Baptist lost. Well, yes. Let's put it that way. Uh, I mean, the... 
that matters a lot more. Yeah, that's my point. It's We'd not... be in conversation for the playoff if it weren't for the fucking Arizona State we sure loss. Would be. We so... knew it. We knew it going in. We did not that they were going to lose. Yes. Uh, we did not know that going in that they were going to win out after that game. <sighs> we did not know that. Uh, Cam Tyson for Seattle U came into the game averaging twenty eight point three points per game, which I believe was the most nationally. Although weirdly, their media notes did not specify that, and uh, he didn't hasn't played enough games to qualify on Sports Reference because he sat out the two games they played against non D one competition. Uh, but the Huskies held him to 18 points on 7 of 18 shooting. Keon Brooks Jr. had a game-high 20. Braxton Mia, like, he was so he was the best player in this game. Wow. 18 points, 7 of 7 shooting, was just a dom- He only had one block, but he was a dominant presence in the paint. Like, changed the game at both ends. And Cole Bajama added 16, including not one, not two, but three dunks Whoa. in this game for Cole I thought you were going to say threes. No, I mean, he had some of those, too, but... Wow, Cole Bajan was throwing it down. I mean, Braxton and Mia, it's a pretty big deal to have two legit seven-footers on I mean, the they court. Can, they can have a seven-footer on the court basically all the time. Frank Kupnong fouled out. Frank or Frank? Frank Kupnong. They kept calling him Frank on the broadcast, and I'm like, there's no way that F-R-A-N-C-K it is not. from Cameroon is named Frank. No, <laughs> it is pronounced Frank. Uh, he fouled out. I think late in regulation of the St. Mary's game, and Mia came in, and there was just no drop off whatsoever. I mean, they even played oh, those was, two guys he together was at times. I mean, they were talking on the broadcast where they're like, "Kevnon makes that play about it, like a couple of plays," and I was like, "I don't really know." Like there was one offensive rebound or whatever, and just like I think Braxton Mia is kind of holding it down. He and he really seems to be, you know. Look, I, I'm not saying that this is necessarily going to continue on this trajectory, but. There were plays he made in the Seattle game where he slowed down and finished that I don't think he was going to be able to do early in the season. And then you add kind of the ability to be a lob threat, the dunks on top of that. Like, it's it's a little, and this may sound like I'm selling him too short, but JaVale McGee-ish I mean, is kind of the comp. JaVale McGee, he's really hung around for a long time. He has. Won uh, championships with two different teams. But the one of the blocks that... Mia had an overtime against St. Mary's. We're just like, their big man's like 6'10 or something and looked puny against Braxton and Mia. Mitchell Saxon, a Seattle native, actually. Didn't and, realize that until the other day. And watching, I'm just like, is he going to shoot that? Because this is definitely going to be rejected. I mean, Seattle, then, you kept driving into the paint and then they're like trying to shoot it way high over me. Like, what did like, you no. think was going to happen here? Which I, Look, I this understand. Is not PLU. Yeah, in the conference of Gonzaga, you don't face that no, many. They're, they're not in Gonzaga's <laughs> conference. Oh, you're taking St. Mary's. St. Mary's. I'm taking Seattle. But in, in the conference of Gonzaga, you don't face that many high quality players. The big men are usually yeah, like 6'8. Or no, whatever. I definitely don't face any <laughs> shot blocking seven footers in the West Coast Conference recently. Are you saying that sarcastically? I am saying that. Yes, Chet Holmgren. Oh come on! Are you <laughs> kidding me? For for one one pathetic season. Anyway, <clears throat> it was fine. He really showed up in the tournament. But like the big men in the West Coast Conference are six eight, right? It's a John Brockman conference. And I mean, not necessarily. Like Jock Landale was there. Phoenix Sun star. Like. Same, like, and BYU has some legit size. Yeah, like Pepperdine is not going to necessarily have a lot of seven-footers. I just saw that and I was like, St. Mary's can't deal with this height. They really had a very difficult time dealing with it for what they were trying to do. They also last year in the NCAA tournament beat Tris Jackson Davis in Indiana, who's one of the best big men in the country. Like, you, you put a little respect on St. Mary's name. That makes it even better. It does. I agree. 
I so, was mostly just trying to insult Gonzaga. I know. I mean, that had nothing to do with St. Mary's. So the Huskies are back in the Ken Palm Top 100 for the Hello. first time since December 2020. Fittingly, last got in there by beating Seattle U, blowing out Seattle U in December 2020 before subsequently, two games later, losing at home to Montana. The one big red flag for the Huskies is you ask whether they might be good. They are relying heavily on poor opponent three-point shooting. St. Mary's went 6 of 29 beyond the arc. Seattle U went 10 of 40, missed a bunch in the second half after a hotter first half. Cal Baptist was the only UW opponent so far to shoot even 30% on threes. They shot 43. And the overall 26% opponent three-point percentage is 16th lowest <clears throat> in the NCAA thus far. So that's obviously unsustainable. In terms has, of what to expect, has that been a consistent in the Mike Hopkins era? No, they've had some str- like they've had some stretches where they have defended particularly well from you know re- opponents have shot I should say opponents have shot particularly poorly. I thought from there three was point one range. season where uh, there there have been seasons uh, they shot thirty one percent in twenty nineteen twenty that ranked 69th in the NCAA, but like we've seen stretches where. At, Usually it's been at the start of conference play after they've had their desultory non-conference uh-huh. home losses. And then opponents will struggle and you'll be like, wait, how is UW 6-3 and three in conference play? Yes. And that'll be the biggest reason? Yeah. We haven't necessarily seen it in non-conference like this. So it'll be interesting how much that holds up. But they are going to be good at defending twos, I think, all season with the size that they have in the paint. Number two in the country in opponent in block rate. Uh, which they also did in 2019-20, the Isaiah Stewart season. Uh, So the Huskies now briefly turn their attention to conference play, traveling to Corvallis to face Oregon State on Thursday before hosting Colorado on Sunday. Why, Why are they playing these games? So that they can, basically so that they can fit in more conference games with, like, the they extended the schedule from the traditional 18 games to 20. So okay. I saw it on the schedule. This is something they did last year also, right? Yeah, they've done it a few years now. I think it started pre-pandemic. Okay. So it's not because of that. I don't really like it. No, me neither. Okay. It's just so randomly in the middle of nowhere. I'm happy we're in agreement that it's bad. Yeah. The Big Ten did it earlier. Pac-12 had done it in women's basketball for a longer period of time because that season ends a week earlier. But uh, uh, So the Beavers have lost four in a row to drop to number 240 in the Pomeroy rankings. They lost 79-66 at home to Portland State to start that streak before going 0-3 in the Phil Knight Legacy Tournament. They actually somehow came within a three-pointer of taking Duke to overtime <laughs> in their opener, which would have messed up all those brackets for the rest of the tournament for all those of us who were like only interested in scouting NBA prospects. Uh, but then lost to Florida, and then lost a second time by double digits to Portland State <laughs> in these to finish eighth. In the, in the Phil Knight Legacy bracket. Uh, Beavers now ranked lower than North Florida and Cal Baptist and easily the lowest rated power conference team in Ken Palm, including the Big East. Colorado, tougher test for the Huskies at home. A very weird 4-3 thus far this season. They beat Tennessee and Nashville, the only loss for a Vols team that is up to number three in Ken Palm. What? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And also got a top 50 win over Texas A&M in their tournament that they played in South Carolina, but also lost at Grambling State, which is ranked 273rd in the Ken Palm rankings in a true road game as part of the Pac-12 SWAC Legacy Series, which is not going good for the Pac-12. <laughs> really struggled going on the road this to face the Pac-12 SWAC, SWAC Legacy Series? What is the legacy? 
I'm just, you know, trying to honor those HBCU colleges in the SWAC. Okay. And give them like some marquee, because usually those are the teams that have to play a ton of guarantee games in non-conference and they never get to host a power conference opponent. Yeah. So that was the idea there. The result of it was that a bunch of Pac-12 teams lost on the road to SWAC teams. So uh, they also lost to number 138 UMass in their tournament on a neutral site. The result of that, Buffs have actually moved up four spots after starting the season 61st in the Pomeroy rankings. I mean, they beat one of the best teams in the country. It's, yeah. More or less kind of. It's a little like UW, I think that was 2017-18 was Mike Hopkins' first season, where they beat Kansas in Kansas City. That would be the equivalent of that when they were ranked number yep. one. That was the equivalent of that. That was the week thing. that you called it the best week in Seattle sports history. Yeah. Still didn't call it that. Every team lost. And then they lost to Gonzaga by a million points. <laughs> we were so excited about a game against Gonzaga. <laughs> hope is a hope. Hope can drive a man insane. Uh, Huskies, uh, the Huskies. Colorado lost to Jabari Walker to the Portland Trail Blazers. And are led offensively by sophomore point guard KJ Simpson, who's averaging 17.1 points per game, but has been inefficient as a scorer thus far. So we'll know a lot more about the Huskies, I think, after the next week. If they win both of these games, then they are legit. What's, so this is the this is a Thursday Sunday. So more or less doing like a traditional yeah. Pac-12 road trip. Very much so. Okay. But not a road trip because one of those games is at home. Because the way it works is you add one home game and one road game. So at Corvallis, then home on Sunday. Okay, so they're, they're hosting Colorado, which is the tougher game. Yes. So it's plausible they could go 2-0. Not necessarily likely. Or right, UW football, the waiting game begins now to see where the Huskies are going to play their bowl game. Uh, I went and did some research after the Huskies were ranked ninth in both the AP and the coaches' poll. So we have eight years thus far of the college football playoff. There have been three teams that at this stage of the season were ranked in the AP top 10 that did not then lose a conference championship game and and still missed out on a New Year's Six Bowl. So Alabama in 2019 was ranked ninth by the AP at this poll point, but was 12th in the college football playoff poll, which will be out Tuesday night. So we don't know yet where the Huskies are. Did they have three losses or something? I think so, yeah. Okay. Uh, then in 2020, this actually happened with two different teams in that unusual shortened season. Indiana, who happened to have an injured quarterback by the name of Michael Penix Jr., was ranked seventh by the AP after the regular season, but 11th by the playoff committee. And then Coastal Carolina was ranked ninth by the AP, but 12th by the co- the playoff committee because they hate mid-majors. Both of those kind of feel like... Uh, they may actually have been right on that one. Well, I mean, yes. But it's kind of like... The reality is they're trying to find games that are going to draw ratings and make money. Yes. And like the Coastal Carolina fan base is pretty small and Indiana playing with an injured Michael Penix Jr. is not exactly particularly exciting to the college football. Although they had won some games without Penix. I I don't know exactly when he went out, but they were six and one at that point. But there is, it's not rigged. I'm sure that the college football playoff committee wouldn't mind if TCU would lose or whatever, but like, the reality is they're still trying to find matchups that are going to be high rated. So I think the two things to watch for when that playoff, those CFP rankings come out this week, uh, if you look back to last week, the Huskies were behind in the college football playoff ranking Kansas State, who beat Kansas over the weekend, but uh, three spots ahead of them in the AP poll, one spot ahead of them in the coaches poll. So which of those two teams is higher could come into play 
eventually. Kansas State is going to be playing against TCU in the Big 12 right. Championship, though, so it probably doesn't matter. Probably does not matter, yes, from that standpoint. Uh, then Utah would be the other team, I think, to watch, whether they're ahead of... I mean, does, again, it doesn't really matter because they're playing in the Pac-12 Championship, but it will tell us something about how the committee sees UW, I guess. I think just understanding those two things, though, because it's like, if Kansas State beats TCU, then it's not. it doesn't matter where they're ranked anyway. Because obviously Kansas State is going to be in, TCU probably also will be in. Which is what we don't want. We want chalk. Yes. Yes. Chalk is good for the Huskies. <clears throat> and same with Utah. Obviously, right. USC is the most important from the standpoint, both from Utah potentially jumping the Huskies or jumping the <clears throat> giddy playoff spot assured, but also in terms of opening up potentially the Rose Bowl to the Huskies if USC is in the playoff. And USC, if they win, will be in the playoff. I mean, it seems very likely, but again, that's not something we'll know for sure how the committee feels about until we see how they rank <clears throat> USC this week. There's almost no doubt in my mind that if USC wins, they'll be in the playoff. I mean, there's a scenario where they could put Ohio State ahead of them, I guess, but... I'd be pretty surprised by that. I would be, too. Especially, uh, like, the, all the talk of how long it's been since a Pac-12 team has oh, been in the playoff. They wouldn't mind. I mean, again, obviously, Ohio State has a lot of sway, but they wouldn't mind having a team from Los Angeles be in the college football playoff. I mean, you know, either way, again, they're getting a big Ten team. <laughs> as much as I say that about the Pac-12. Ke- Kevin Ward will be happy. <laughs> My favorite was there was like news stories about like Kevin Warren makes the pitch for Ohio State to yeah. also make the play. Like, yeah, of course. What did you expect him to say? Yeah. So uh, a couple of statistical notes. UW offense after that performance is the Cougs, 51 points, 703 yards of offense, moved up to number five in FPI efficiency offensively. Uh, Michael Penix Jr. Who's ahead of them in FPI efficiency? I think USC is. I wouldn't be surprised by that. But uh, I have to look that up. I don't know. That are up. all the other schools in the Pac-12? <laughs> I don't think they are all in the Pac-12. All right. These schools that are ahead of them in offensive efficiency, USC is number one, Ohio State, Tennessee, Georgia, and then UW. Kansas somehow wow, checking wow, in number look at six. Kansas right there. <laughs> I was going to say, you're basically talking about like some of the best schools in the country this year, and then UW being right there in the mix. UW's defense also not that far behind USC and Tennessee. So they're just good. Yeah. I mean, that's that's kind of it. Where is UW overall in F- FPI? Well, they're 18th in efficiency. They did not move whatsoever in overall FPI. They, they, that's wild. It's still 22nd. So. Okay, you were saying about Michael Penix? He is up to 12th <clears throat> in QBR, somehow fifth in the Pac 12. He's got a lot of offense in the Pac 12. But one thing that I think is interesting to look at, if you look at total EPA, he's fourth. Or points among, above, above average, he's fifth because the volume of passing for UW has been much higher than a lot of these teams with slight, whose quarterbacks have slightly higher QBRs. So it's Caleb Williams. Yes. Bo Nix. Uh, Bo Nix is ahead of him in points above average, but not EPA. What the fuck? What do you Literally, mean? Literally, what does Michael Penix have to do I, I don't. I'm not sure. Exactly. He's there's a chance that he's invite. He's not going to win the Heisman, but I wouldn't be shocked if he was a Heisman finalist. Certainly, the Huskies are putting on a. It's it's not basketball, but they're putting on the full court press to get Penix to be a Heisman finalist. I, I'm just saying. I think it's. I think he's probably unlikely. I mean, one of the people ahead of him in those two stats, by the way, is the UT San Antonio quarterback Frank Harris. So I don't think he's going to make the uh, Heisman cut. 
Oh, I thought you were saying in the Pac-12. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no. He's, he's, he is fifth in QBR in the Pac-12. What is QBR? Me- Why are we even talking about QBR if there is a measurement that Michael Penix is fifth in? It's one of those things where you understand stats, right? Like, if you have a stat and you're like, if it so clearly is wrong, then I should probably rethink what I'm doing here. Is that not something that you do? I mean, Dorian Thompson-Robinson has had an awesome season. I don't think it's that. And again, Bo Nix and fifth in Caleb the Pac-12. Williams. Caleb Williams, Dorian Thompson-Robinson, Bo Nix. The fourth is Cam Rising from Utah. So I don't know where their offense ranks overall. But uh, I mean, now one of those things are, that those guys have in common, we know that QBR does tend to overvalue running contributions. Those guys are all much more effective as runners than Michael Penix Jr. is. Well, when he's at the fucking Heisman ceremony, I'm sure he'll be thinking about how he's fifth in QBR in the back we'll, we'll see if he makes it. You look at EPA strictly as a passer. Number one is a quarterback I was not familiar with named Drake May from North Carolina, okay. who is also a Heisman contender. And the brother of former North Carolina basketball standout, Luke May. I learned a lot about him today. Number two is Michael Penix Jr. in that stat. So... All right, a couple other notes. Has, has UW, when was the last time UW had a, a player invited to the Heisman ceremony? I believe Edmund's the only one that they've ever had invited. Steve Edmund was it. I think so. Wow. I mean, it would be a huge Tui deal. just missed out on being a finalist, if I recall correctly. I. So yeah, yeah, it'd be a huge deal. I mean, I think what Michael Penix has done this one season, and we're talking about what's next for... For UW as a program, I think it is likely that Dylan Morris or Sam Heward is the starting quarterback next year. But also, I think the starting quarterback for the University of Washington might not be on the roster right now. We can't rule out that the starting quarterback for the Huskies next year will be Michael Penix Jr. So he talked about that today as he met with reporters. Said he does plan to play in the Huskies bowl game, but undecided about whether to enter the NFL draft. So, it's not a it's not a firm... Yes, he's going to the NFL. I mean, you saw it happen with Lincoln Riley, right? Like, Lincoln Riley in back-to-back years, obviously he did it in an even higher capacity than Kalen DeBoer has done so far. But you look at, you have Kyler Murray, Jalen Hurts the next year, into Spencer Rattler, Caleb Williams, players like that, right? If you're known as somebody who can take quarterbacks and make them viable NFL players, make them Heisman candidates, you could keep getting those players. We, we are not going to enter into an era where quarterbacks are going to be less available. I agree with that, certainly. Yeah. And, and you look around the country, and many of the best quarterbacks in the country have been transfers. Yeah. Bo so, Nicks. I, I think the reason it is important, it's important for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons it's very important to be pushing this and to try to get Michael Penix to the Heisman ceremony is... Other quarterbacks around the country are going to be looking at that. And if Kalen DeBoer is like, he's seen a lot of Dylan Morris and a lot of Sam Heward. And if he's like, I can go out and find somebody who I can make better than those players, they're going to go find him. Maybe they didn't invite people to the Heisman the same way back then. They can't find out whether Edmund was actually invited or not. He finished fourth in the voting. So, Do, And they typically bring three? I think they bring more than that now. Okay. But it kind of depends <clears throat> on how the voting goes, if I recall correctly. Uh, other UW note, Jack Westover did unfortunately suffer a concussion Saturday on the hit in that game that was not reviewed for targeting. Have not yet heard from the Pac-12 about that one. Oh, God. Not even from Larry Scott. So fucking stupid. 
All right, let's wrap up by talking about the Seahawks, who lost in overtime. It is funny. Wait, we didn't even talk about this on the post-game podcast. I'll complain what? about refereeing in a second here when, oh, as okay. it relates to the Seahawks. But the fact that you have targeting as a rule, and it was such a clear targeting. There's a lot of times that refs will review for targeting on plays where I'm like, I don't even really see what you're looking at here. Or it's pretty clearly not a targeting. I think there was one in the wind game against Oregon State. Uh where it was like they reviewed for targeting. It wasn't really even close. You're just like, what are you looking, what are you seeing there that you think makes you think this is targeting? Yep. This was a clear targeting play on the edge. Jack Westover had a concussion from the play and was injured. And at no point did they signal down and say, hey, we should review this play. To me, it's not like if the referees didn't see it on the field, the, the action moves fast. This is on the replay both. I mean, to not have seen that on the field where that play happened, it wasn't a play where it's like, oh yeah, way on the other side of the play. Like that was the tackle was a targeting play. But to not review that at all. And I also have to say, when they said that they confirmed the Cam Davis fumble, it was fucking absurd. There's no way that that could have been confirmed. You could say that there's not enough video evidence to change the call. That's fine. Or the play is upheld. But it was clearly not confirmed. I agree from, There was no camera angle that was, you could have it said. It was totally inconclusive. There was nothing to yeah, and it's like And it's like you called a fumble on the field? Fine. Leave it as a fumble on the field. But to say that that, is, that, that was confirmed, it's just, like, it's just wrong. Yes. So Seahawks, 40-34 to overtime loss Sunday against the Las Vegas Raiders. You were at this game. Takeaways? I have two. I have three takeaways. Takeaway number one. I'll, I'll, do, the, I'll do this topic sentence-wise. Uh, I'm very angry about some of the calls in this game. However, I do think there's a reason to still see long-term hope for the team. And also, I think that the game operations at Seahawks at Lumen Field need a lot of work. Wow. I did not expect that to be coming up here. Number one. So much of the decibel meter during that one. Did they talk about the decibel meter? I mean, I don't know what they, they talked about because they, I, didn't, I didn't hear a second of this broadcast. I was watching it in the Moda Center. So they brought in the people who like registered, discovered that the beast quake was the thing or whatever. But they were and I'm showing... like, were you counting the decibels for the Raiders fans? They're cheering. Well, look, uh, honestly, to me, the Raiders is actually one of the most fun teams to come to town because it's like the way that the way that we've had opposing fans over the years, like when Packers fans fucking obnoxious, right? Packers fans are the most entitled fans that you will ever come across. Broncos fans, they came into that game being like, like they, they waited all summer to come to Seattle to try to taunt the Seahawks and to try to taunt Seahawks fans. And guess what? Joke's on you, motherfuckers. But I, I don't know. At some point, it's not even funny. It's just sad. Oh, it's funny. It is Broncos fans being upset is always funny, right? It is a born on third base fan base. Raiders fans, though, Raiders fans are like, I'm with these people. <laughs> You're like, damn, this Raiders fan base is, they are, they are all tough as hell. They are angry and wild and yelling, but it was never combative with the Seahawks fans, really. Like, they were going nuts, but I was like, they're just, everybody is having a good time, and you kind of feel for Raiders fans. Their team has moved all over the country. You're just like, whatever. You are part of a club that we are not 
part of or whatever. You probably saw something in the show Sons of Anarchy that I've never seen before. And and do you? Like, I was just like, I kind of appreciated the Raiders fans. Like, they went nuts for the run at the end of the game, and they were yelling, and it's like, that's I mean, fine. Look, at this point, if you're a Raiders fan, besides the moves... You've stuck with them through a lot of bad football. Yeah. This is, I mean, even Cowboys fans like to complain about, like, oh, it's been so long since we won the Super Bowl. Like, sure, but you won, like, three or four of them in the 90s. And the team is consistently so competitive, even so though it's frustrated. Than Cowboys the Raiders fans. are just, have been just bad for a long period of time. I, I, it, it is, they are outside of the Seahawks. I think they're my favorite fan base after that game. Again, there were tons of them, but I never once got angry at them. And it's like at that Broncos game, I was like, wow, I hate you people personally. <laughs> anyway, on the calls on the field, obviously the two most important calls. Number one, forward progress being stopped on that Josh Jacobs run. Literally just nonsense. It is not, if you watch the play in real time, he is going to the ground and fumbles as part of the tackle. It wasn't like he was held up for a long period of time or anything. For that to have been the ruling on the field that his forward progress was stopped is just incorrect. In the same way that they said that the Cam Davis fumble being confirmed was incorrect. It was just the wrong call, and that's what replay is there to deal with. If you call it wrong in the field, we have all sorts of rules to explain it. But saying that his forward progress was stopped was not something that should have... Even entered into the conversation. It was a fumble, and that's it. Pete saw it. Everybody saw it. If they would have been able to review that play without... I'm not, I'm not sure if I was watching at that point. I don't think I saw it. But if they would have been able to have reviewed that play without the notion of forward progress being stopped, it's a fumble. There's no doubt about whether that would have been a fumble and it would have been Seahawks ball. They should be letting those plays run. But it wasn't like... They let plays like the Ken Walker touchdown. He's being held up like his feet were moving or whatever. But like the play really, in when you're talking about this sport of football, it wasn't... The play was over. They yes. just, Ken Walker just kept going and linemen were pushing him. This was not a play like that. This was in the process of being tackled to the ground. Josh Jacobs fumbled the ball. And that's it. Period. And that more or less ends the game if that's a real fumble. Then there's, of course, the DK Metcalf catch, which I, I, was try, I was going back and watching it today being like, what did they see that made them overturn this call? In the same way that we saw on Thanksgiving Day, where it was like, there was, there was Hunter Henry, right? Where there was such a clear touchdown. And it's like, at some when, when the ref came back and was like, this is an incomplete pass, I was like, what did you just go look at that we didn't see here that made you overturn this call? Because even watching that DK Metcalf catch over and over and over again, with, with trying to view it even objectively, trying to be like, what did you see on that play that made you call this incomplete? And I still don't know what they saw, especially because, as Bill Barnwell tweeted and you retweeted, if the idea is to have overwhelming evidence that you should change the call on the field, there's no way that you could have a review that long and have overwhelming video evidence. Unless, I By don't definition, e it is impossible. It is, it, it is not overwhelming if it takes that long. It That's, was the longest review I've ever seen in my entire life. It, it was interminable. I can only imagine how miserable it was in the stadium. It, it felt like because it was taking so long, like they were looking for a reason to call it incomplete. I mean, look, if they had called it incomplete on the field and not changed it, I would have understood that I, if it was considered inconclusive. But yeah, for it to be conclusively not a a catch is is impossible for me to understand as well.
it, it's just a catch. That's it. But then so after that, it's cold as shit in that fucking, like it is nighttime on a clear day in winter in Seattle. It was cold. And after that long review, I think if they just, I think if they had just come back and instantly said it wasn't a catch, I think it would have been different. Those players, you could see the offense get cold. Right, you could see them know, on the sideline get cold. It should have been much colder for the Las Vegas Raiders who play in Las Vegas. It doesn't. It's not like that though. Like the, it is for the offense, they got tight, and you could feel them get tight. Like I had no faith in that third down, and they played pretty well on third downs in the game before. Then the game was they over. They actually did not play that well on third down. They played fine on third down, given that the Raiders, as we talked about last week, are the worst third down defense in the NFL. Okay. Or sorry, the 31st third down defense, the Lions. The thing that makes me angry about it is there is an alternate world where they call that a catch, the Seahawks have the drive that we think they're going to have, and they kick a field goal and win the game. Like, there, there is an alternate world. There might be 99 of 100 alternate worlds that we live in where the Seahawks are 7-4 right now because they just called that a catch because it was obviously a catch. Where they went and looked at it, they were like, can we overturn this? No, boom, let's go. And that's the thing that's all that's frustrating to me. Uh, I can't believe that's the thing that's frustrating to you. The frustrating thing is that the Seahawks were in that position in the first no, place. No, it is not that. The they other played thing is terribly in this game. You cannot dispute play, that. They did not play terribly in this By game. By DVOA, it was their third worst game of the season ahead of a game where they scored no offensive points and a game where they lost at home to the Atlanta Falcons. Badly. I think with the bye week, they overthought the game a little bit. I don't know if I think it's that. that I, I don't, they were so consumed with stopping Devontae Adams. And they didn't even do that good at that. But like they were so consumed with stopping Devontae Adams that they let everything else go. It seems like they spent two weeks thinking about Devontae Adams and never once thought about Matt Collins. And on the touchdown that they had. Or Josh Jacobs. Or Josh Jacobs. The touchdown to Matt Collins where he walked in for a touchdown. There were two defenders running stride for stride with Devonta. I was like, wow, we defended it perfectly. And there's Matt Collins walking in for the touchdown. It was like watching Steph Curry and like in transition when teams will give up a layup because of the fact that they're like, we cannot leave Steph open under any circumstances. They really, they really thought to, and it was, I just think the combination of last week, Devonta having those two long touchdowns against the Broncos. And they were just like, we are not letting that happen. And instead, they let Josh Jacobs fucking run all over them. Can I tell you the problem now? What's the problem? If your concern is, well, we devoted too much attention to coverage and not enough attention to stopping the run. And granted, it was like specifically coverage of Devontae Adams, not stopping the run generally. What I thought was going to happen after that Tampa Bay game of them overreacting and not being able to stop the run in that game clearly did not happen. But now I think it's going to happen. And guess what? The pass coverage wasn't that good in the first place. You look at the last three weeks, which are the last two games for the Seahawks, in terms of EPA per play, they're number 32 on defense. They're number 30 in pass defense and number 27 in run defense. So as bad as the run defense has felt, it still has been better than the pass defense in this stretch where they have been focused on pass defense. I think they came up against a couple of very bad quarterbacks for the Seahawks. We'll see. Who made the play? That old man Tom Brady is the perfect quarterback to go against the Seahawks defense. I remember someone making that point on I, this podcast. It wasn't Ben, was it? I was it Ben? Was it you? Was it? I thought that. I thought that Pete would be. He's been very good at stopping the run through his career. Yeah, too good. Sometimes. I'm. 
I'm I'm chalking these two games up to a fluke. And I don't know if we necessarily need to take too much away from it. Because all <sighs> things considered, the Seahawks offense didn't play that great in this game. I understand it's the Raiders. It's one of the worst defenses. I think I think the Raiders defense is slightly better than they get credit for. Max Crosby is a fucking beast. He he is he is terrifying in and of himself, even though he is in and of himself their only pass rush. They score they scored 33 points in this game. Like it wasn't a bad offensive performance. No, and, the, the offense wasn't I mean, the offense wasn't the issue, but the issue is if you look at DVOA now, the Seahawks are below average at run defense. They're below average at pass defense. They're below average at running the ball and getting worse all the time. There's only one thing they're good at. Now, thankfully, it's the most important yeah, thing in good football. At the thing that matters. But at some point, you can only be so good if you're below average in three of the four, you know, offensive and defensive phases. I mean, they had a couple of just sort of strange drives. Like th- there was the drive that got killed. You you probably weren't even watching this. Uh, like the second drive of the game got killed because of a Will Disley drop right oh, in his no, hands. I was I was sure watching that one. I put it in the chat. I don't I don't remember that. But like, I also think, and there's the play that Pete talked about, right? That was the end of the game, where if Max Crosby gets chipped or whatever, yeah, it's probably a first down. And again, the Seahawks, there's so many worlds. That, that was Seahawks. weird on the TV I was watching because I think it was cut off on the bottom. And so Homer kept running. And I was like, wait, did he somehow catch that? Oh, yeah. Because they actually got a first down out of that? It was, it was wishful thinking. <laughs> it was very wishful thinking. Uh, but like, Gino had his maybe his worst game of the season and still had a pretty good game. Yeah, Gino wasn't the issue at all. Like, I, that, I think the there's a positive that, to take from it. And also, I, I think I, Pete called, or Shane Waldron, but the offensive scheme wasn't the wrong offensive scheme. I was the wrong offensive scheme, but at some point when you've got two weeks in a row where your running back has carried 24 times for 43 yards, you got a problem. I agree that there's a problem. Look, and maybe the answer is more Travis Homer getting involved as a ball carrier because I would like to see that. I think there is a good chance that that's the case, that Ken Walker might move away. I mean, you have the fumble, some mistakes. I think there's a chance that Ken Walker might be a little bit less of the like every down and grain number one back for the team. I think that would probably be a positive development at this stage. It would definitely be a positive development. I'm not saying that we're giving up on Ken Walker completely, but like they didn't just try to pound the rock in this game. They came back they in not. difficult situations where they did the gene. I'm like, we have a thing now with Geno Smith where they did the Geno Smith thing when they were like, boom, 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 down the field for a touchdown. It is, it is a great thing. Those are the drives. When you see those drives, like they began the second half and I was like, we're going to score a touchdown. And then they came down and scored a touchdown. And when, they, when they're able to, to hum the offense in the way that it's supposed to, it looks really, really good. And that's why I think that DK, that DK play that got thrown off, it just it got them all out of sorts. And then the run, the run, so they get the short completion to I think lock it on the final on the possession in overtime. Then the run with Ken Walker on second down, just like, why the fuck did you do that? That was the worst call of the entire game. But still, they, it's not like they ran the ball 26 times. This no, wasn't the I, Seahawks thinking they could run at Aaron not, Donald or it's something. It's not a coaching criticism. I just don't think they're that good. 
Like, there's a certain fundamental limitation to how good this roster is. And, and They're good at passing offense, and they're not that good at anything else. Abe Lucas had probably his worst—not probably. Abe Lucas had his worst game of the year. The offensive line in general had their worst game of the year. This is—it's one game, and you can't but freak out But it's not one game. It's the fact that the defense has had a four-week stretch where they were extremely good at sacking quarterbacks. And in that period of time, the defense was legitimately elite. The period that is not that time, they have been the worst defense in the NFL. I think they're going to settle right in the middle. They're Probably they will, but the right in the middle is, it's fine. That's, that being fine, it's fine. We're living on borrowed time here. We still have the number four pick in the draft coming to us next year. I, I, it's like, great. If we're at the point where we're at six and five and the possibility of, and it's not a lucky six and five, it's probably a slightly unlucky six and five. What is their Pythagorean record? Somewhere around there. But they're not like, uh, oh, they won some like crazy games or whatever. Their expected win loss is 5.7 and 5.3. So I'm a little surprised by that. Yeah. But, uh, but it's way, not like they've like won some lucky games. Like they've been DVOA wise about where they should be. Yeah. So to be here with this roster as it is, it is great. Yes. It is a I great agree in a big picture standpoint. But and the, the expectations that this team generated a couple weeks ago or three weeks ago going into the Tampa Bay game no longer seem realistic. I, Do you think that's unfair? Because then we were talking about likely division champions. Could they potentially even get up to the two seed? I think when you look at the schedule, understanding where the Rams are at, and knowing oh. that there are two Rams games on the schedule. We'll get to that. Knowing that the Panthers at home is still on the schedule. I, And then a couple of, we'll see about the Jets. I have no idea. And the Chiefs, like understanding, but that, they just you know if they win those three games, you just need to find one win somewhere, and maybe you may even get in at nine and eight, but probably not. So, understanding how that's looking, I I'm not going to panic yet. But I my mean, last complaint, I'm not going to panic. No one's panicking. It's just reassessing. Okay. The tradition of Festivus begins with the airing of grievances. I got a lot of problems with you people. Now, you're gonna hear about it. Seahawks game ops. I just, in general, I think football game operations is probably the hardest of any sport. I think basketball is a little bit more natural. Baseball is a little bit more natural. There are a lot of pauses. And the NFL, things keep moving. It's a giant stadium. It's hard to entertain a giant stadium, right? But, one thing that I care about is that you have something in your hometown that is your thing. And I will give the Mariners credit for this. And I will give the Kraken credit for this. But. Wait, wait, oh, you Macklemore with the Mariners now? Yeah. And Louie Louie. Louis, yes, Louie Louie was the they had both anthem. Yes. In the fourth quarter, they, they have on the screen visions of mountains in Seattle and fairies and things like that. And they play fucking Take Me Home Country Roads by John Denver trying to recreate the magic of something that happened in Germany. And it's fucking bullshit. You have so oh, much You know music. what this reminds me of? What is that? The Huskies. They've been trying to recreate. They, they saw that Michigan game where I they all do it. a sing-along. I and they were like, oh, it. we need to do that in the fourth a quarter. A sing-along is fine. But you have to do something of your own. It's not that hard to think of something that comes from the Northwest musically, right? It's not like we're in fucking Lincoln, Nebraska, right? Like, 
There are or or Omaha, Nebraska. I'd happily sing along to Bright Eyes. They probably would have the wherewithal too if they had an NFL team. But there's so much history musically in Seattle. You could play anything and have it be a sing along. And the fact that they did that and tried to just take, they had the moment on TV, they saw that and they're like, we need that. But instead of thinking to themselves, how do we create this for ourselves? They just did the control C, control V to fucking Germany. I'm so annoyed about it. And just like, they kept showing Bruce Irvin and Bruce was like enjoying it or whatever. And it's kind of funny that the quarterback and Bruce Irvin went to West Virginia. I understand that. Gino wasn't even on the field, but they kept showing Bruce Irvin. And I was like, this kind he's like, I feel like he was like the poster child for it or whatever. Like if Bruce Irvin was just like ignoring them, it was like camera straight up in his face. Like it's like, play it up here, Bruce. They're playing the stupid fucking song from West Virginia. And it's a great song for the state of West Virginia. There is no place that is further from Seattle, Washington on the face of the earth than West Virginia. I literally have never met a person from West Virginia. Not in my entire life. I've never considered the state. Tours don't go through there. I'm sorry. I am sure it's a beautiful place, but it doesn't matter because it's not Seattle, Washington. And it has nothing to do. They're showing Take Me Home Country Road. Like, they're playing the song, and they're showing clips of Seattle. And I'm like, that's fine. That's not what the song is about. <sighs> Play I Will Follow You Into the Dark. I'll fucking sing along to that. <laughs> If that's necessarily the energy we want going Love of mine, someday you will die. Let's fucking go. <laughs> I mean, obviously they should play like Watts and everyone sing along to that. There there again, there are thousands of popular songs from Seattle. Right? Like, is it that hard? I don't know why they're bad at this. The fucking like it, it's again, it's like the the social media team or whatever, just like looking for a moment. I get it. I understand. But just make it your own and it'll be a big deal. That's why it was fun in Germany. Well, what was fun in Germany was because it was organic. And it was in fucking Germany. Chris was telling me, so he went to Germany for... Oktoberfest? Oktoberfest, I think before the Seahawks played against... I think the time it was right around there. I think he went to Oktoberfest before the Seahawks last played the Raiders... Uh, in London, and he was like, I was in a bar, and he was like, they were playing John Denver, and everybody was singing along to so it. So apparently there was a, a German version of it or something. A uh, Hasselhoff cover, maybe? Oh, wow. I, I read something about that that but helped explain like, the popularity. It is a big deal in Germany, and yes. that's fun that it's a big deal in Germany, but that's that's fine. Leave that in Germany. Leave that energy in Germany. Yeah, no. In I, Seattle, we'll follow you into the dark. I 100% agree. Like, it, it should be authentic to your region and organic, not something contrived and copied. It's the only thing I ask for. The Mariners, I have to say, they are they are so much better at game operations and managing their fan base. Like, that's why the Mariners have such a large fan base, despite years of being terrible, is because people like the fan experience of Mariners games. No. Not my favorite. But uh, you understand that people do. Yes, no, I understand. And this offseason, I think they have doubled down on it in general, where they've been like, I don't even know what the stuff means about like you can go and everybody can go into the pen now and shit like that. Hmm. Like they've made a bunch of announcements where they've made it more accessible for fans after being better. But also like the Sounders don't necessarily, it's much more, again, organic and fan-driven at Sounders games, but the song they sing along to is Perry Como the bluest skies you'll ever see are in Seattle. It's a, literally a song about Seattle. Why is every, even the Kraken, 
Like the Kraken have fucking Nirvana when you score goals, right? Yeah. It's not that hard. That's the team that has their official beer from fucking Oregon. <laughs> they figured it out. <laughs> Oregon? Oh, boy. Well. I'm just saying, like, is it that hard? Why have they never once figured this out? You know who hasn't figured things out <sighs> this season? It's the defending Super Bowl champion. Asterisk. Las Vegas. <laughs> Don't forget the asterisk. Everybody, People have to note that when they mention the Super Bowl. Uh, I'm not mad. Please don't put in the paper that I was mad. Uh, the Rams ahead of their matchup with the Seahawks this week in L.A. Three and eight have lost five consecutive games since their bye week. Matthew Safford has played just once since entering concussion protocol after their November 6th game. Came back against New Orleans, then left that game and re-entered concussion protocol. My ESPN colleague Adam Schefter reported Sunday that the Rams are, quote, uncertain when or if Stafford will return this season. Sean McVay wouldn't rule out shutting him down last week to reporters telling them that the Rams, quote, won't do anything that's reckless with their players' health. Already the Rams were without three starting offensive linemen, wide receiver Cooper Cup, who's on IR after ankle surgery, Fellow wide receiver Alan Robinson out for the season after suffering a stress fracture of the navicular bone in his foot that will require surgery. And now Aaron Donald is dealing with an ankle sprain, possibly a high ankle sprain. How unrecognizable the Rams offense is, uh, if you go to the ESPN preview of this game, you have the leaders in passing yards, rushing yards, and receiving yards. Stafford, obviously, is the Rams' leading leader in passing yards. Coop in receiving yards. Rushing yards... They literally have a Blake jersey <laughs> because they waved leading rusher Daryl Henderson Jr. last week. <laughs> which the rushing leaders are Ken Walker and <laughs> Dash. <laughs> That's truly, actually really funny. Truly, truly incredible. Which I, I I sort of understand. Jordan Rodriguez, a friend of the pod from the Athletic, point wrote about this, and you know Daryl Henderson Jr. doesn't play special teams, so if you fall down the depth chart, then it becomes difficult to stick around in that position. But also, he was their leading rusher, and they cut him, and they also cut their a starting linebacker last week. Like things are going uh. just going bad in Los Angeles, where of course the Rams, much like the Denver Broncos, whom they'll play on Christmas Day in a game that will be very important for the Seahawks <laughs> and Lions, also owe their first round pick via the staff. What a pick. Christmas gift it would be if the Rams could pull off a victory. You know how the Bulls send representatives to college football games to the teams <laughs> that they might invite? The Seahawks and Lions should send representatives <laughs> to the Rams Broncos game on Christmas Day. Just monitor, monitor how that draft pick is coming. So who is healthy for the Rams, you might ask? Well, John Wolford started their loss to Arizona, then suffered a neck injury, so Bryce Perkins relieved Stafford against the Saints, started Sunday's loss at Kansas City, even though Wolford was healthy as a backup. Uh, Perkins went 13 of 23 for 100 yards, two interceptions in his first NFL start. Does bring a real run dimension, carried nine times for 44 yards in that game. Besides defense, besides Donald, I should say, the defense, which boasts Jalen Ramsey and former Seahawk Bobby Wagner, uh, in addition to having Donald all season up to now, has only been fine. They're 16th in DVOA after three consecutive top 10 finishes. Did play reasonably well against the Chiefs after back-to-back poor games, holding Patrick Mahomes to 7.6 yards per attempt and picking him off. But they did not have a sack, and they ranked 23rd in sack rate this season, missing 
Von Miller after his departure in free agency after the Super Bowl. The Seahawks somehow on the road against the Los Angeles Rams <laughs> are eight point favorites in this that. game. I was like, I don't, don't show me this. I, it's too much. It is too many points. For the first time all season, I think the Seahawks are being given too too much credit by Vegas. I I just don't know what to think of this game. I was like, I can't, I cannot look at the Seahawks being eight and a half point favorites. It's probably right. Like I get it from a practical standpoint. But, but I'm going to be very scared of Bryce Perkins oh, yeah. all week long. I'm going to be very, just, it's the Rams. Like, that's, they have tortured the Seahawks for so long under Sean McVay. Uh, so there's only, I guess, three losses, right? They've beaten the, the McVay teams three times. I'd have to go back through it. So they, there, was, there was the missed field goal game in Seattle. The Greg Zarline missed the field goal at yeah. the very end of the game. The first one was, I think, Sean McVay's first season. Uh where they had a pass to Cooper Cup in the end zone that he could have caught, ended up dropping, and then they came to Seattle and fucking ended the Russell Wilson era later that year. <laughs> that was like... I don't know if they ended the Russell but Wilson you, like, era. But they came in and was just like, oh, shit. They ended <laughs> it was the, like, we are not the same teams anymore. They ended the Faith in Pete Carroll defenses era, yes. is what I would say about that particular game. And then there was the game that uh, Wolford started in the COVID yeah. year. The game that Wolf has started. When they beat them in the regular season and the Rams came back. Oh, yeah. And then but beat the us Wolford in the didn't start that one, did he? Goff started it? I think Goff started the regular. He got, Wolford started the playoff matchup and then Goff came in off the bench. No, vice versa. Goff started the playoff matchup and then Wolford came in off the bench. No. Wolford started and Goff came in and played and won the game. Was it the other way around? It was. Okay. I'm very confident of that information. Jared Goff did nothing wrong. <laughs> I mean... Like, Jared Goff, pretty competent quarterback right now. Oh, yeah. And you got two first-round picks, one of which is likely to be in the top five. Like, obviously, the, the Russell Wilson deal, amazing. But the Lions came out It's not like the Broncos won well. a Super Bowl, and then they got bad. Fair. Or whatever. <laughs> Fair. But, like, <laughs> when you factor in the asterisk on the Super Bowl, I like that my hate for the Rams is translated to a love for Jared Goff. Goff in that game, by the way, that they beat the Seahawks, he completed 9 of 19 passes for 155 It was just brutal. Anyway, so I think those are the only three. Russ was 11 of 27 in that game. It was, they were broken. The offense was broken at that point. It was, yes. Uh, So I'm just going to be scared, no matter what. Even seeing, like the Aaron Donald news was a little bit of like, okay, I feel like when we talked about the secondary and how they've played recently, not having to face Cooper Cup or Allen Robinson sure looks a lot better. I agree. So it's, but Jared Goff, by the way, in the regular season loss in 2020, 24 of 43 for 234 yards and an interception. He was broken at that point. Yes. I just really have nothing else to say. I, it's not even a game that you can analyze like, from a, here's what they are offensively and defensively. The Rams have clearly been terrible all season. They're an awful offense, probably the worst in the NFL at this point. I didn't even bother looking up their DVOA because whatever it is, it, it's not representative of them. But they were even when they had Stafford and Cooper Cup and Allen Robinson, still one of the worst offenses in the NFL. And so removing those players. I mean, they're 27th over the course of the season. One, not last in the NFC West. And also not last among teams that owe their first round pick to other teams because they traded for starting quarterbacks. Is that, that, that team is 29th. But all things considered, they're fifth worst in the NFL. 
offensively. And for many of those games, they had Matthew Stafford. They had Cooper Cup. They had all these players. So removing them, they are in, offensively at least, Texans territory. Yes. So the anticipation should be that whatever went wrong for the Seahawks defense the last two weeks against Tampa Bay and against Oakland, Las Vegas. I, I'm pretty confident I avoided saying Oakland. Bring point. him back. Bring him back. I mean, sure. That will not happen again against the Rams. There's no rushing attack to be concerned with, really. There's not really a passing, aside from Bryce Perkins running the ball. There's no passing attack to be concerned with. I think they're very aware that Bryce Perkins can run the ball. And it really just comes down to, can the offense do what they've done more or less all season long and score points? I get that the running has been worse, has regressed pretty significantly, but the passing hasn't that much. And when there's no Aaron Donald to worry about, you know, it was looking like they might face two of the best pass rushers in the league in back-to-back weeks. That's not the case anymore. So if there's no Aaron Donald to worry about, things look that much easier. And I get why the Seahawks are this big of favorites, but I will be on a heightened alert every second of that game because they are playing the Rams on the fucking road and we just have not seen it. The, the Seahawks now have one at the Rams stadium. So they've got that going for them, which is nice. That'd be the Rams there. At SoFi. Well, they have one at SoFi. Uh, I mean, I think the last time that they won... In LA? Yeah, it was that game that I was talking about. Yes, it was. I, I looked it up already. 2017. So, it's just, it's one of the situations that Again, I'm not going to anticipate that things are going to go well until it actually happens because there have been a lot of L's against the Rams recently. It's all fair. Chances of victory? (sighs) Emotionally or practically? (laughs) Answer however you need to. It's probably like a 78% chance of victory. It's probably even actually higher than that. Well, I don't know if it's that high. They're still on the road. I mean, they're eight and a half point favorites on the road. Like that implies that they're like at least 11 points better than the Rams on a neutral site. Yeah. but When was the last time the Seahawks were a touchdown favorite against anybody? It would have had to be that Jets game last year, right? That's probably correct. So... Oh, well, the Lions. They were probably a touchdown favorite against the Lions at home, don't you think? Or, I think that's... Which game was it later? The Lions was after. Yeah. I think that's the game that I'm thinking of. week 17, so... Yeah, that's the game that I'm thinking of. Yeah. They lost the game to the Jets, right? No, they didn't play the Jets then. They they lost to the Bears. That's who you're thinking of. It was bleak. It was bleak. I mean, I'm just, I I was at the game and I was like, honestly, I'm just excited to be here in almost December and playing meaningful football. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to go 70% chance of victory. Okay. Just, just to be kind of conservative about that. What was the line on that Lions game? Hmm, not finding it here. Uh, I did want to know, by the way, speaking of lines, we have not been heard. If you go to the Caesar Sportsbook by William Hill, still no sign 
of Charles Cross or Abe Lucas <laughs> on the offensive rookie of the year odds. Tyquan Thornton still there, sitting there at 10, plus 10,000. <laughs> Tyquan Thornton last week, no stats. <laughs> they didn't mention his game, name at one point in the broadcast. And I was like, oh, I know who that is now. <laughs> I remember Tyquan Thornton. He, like, made his spe- he didn't even make a special teams tackle. He did not register in the box score. Uh, I, I, he did not offensively. I, he might have recorded the tackle. <laughs> I can't rule that out. I love that they just keep him on there at 10,000 to 1. Like as if I, there must be at least somebody who's put like a dollar down on Tyquan Thornton for him just blowing up in the second half. Oh, he didn't play any special team snaps, so he definitely didn't <laughs> record a tackle. He, has never, he has, does not appear to have ever played a special team snap. Well, Abe Lucas is now... Oh, no, I guess he has, because he, well, he does have a tackle. So, one on the Maybe season. on an interception. It could be. Uh, I feel like the Abe Lucas-Charles Cross case, it definitely got hurt a little bit this last week. But not as much as Ken Walker the third, who's still a favorite. <laughs> still a favorite. 190. It does, it does not matter. What actually happened doesn't matter. He scored a touchdown. Two. He scored two touchdowns, yeah. period. That's all that matters. That's great for my fantasy team. And Ken his, Walker. We're your odds. Oh, your fucking fantasy team. Congrats to wait. Who was it that I lost? That I lost to? Of all people, is the number one Etro fan too. That really felt good. Um, watching Josh Jacobs run for an eighty-yard touchdown to lose the fucking game for the Seahawks and my fantasy game against. Uh, oh my god! Number one Etro fan. Wait, who is that again? I'm pulling it up. Great audio here. Great audio. Love it. <laughs> uh, Alex Forte, number one Etro fan. Well, congrats on your asterisk fantasy victory also. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> on that note. I'm not mad. <laughs> please, don't don't put, put in, please don't put in the paper that I was mad. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. Thanks.